Years ago, then Elder Hinckley told a story in General Conference about a time when he worked at a train yard and heard that a passenger train had arrived without the baggage car. He explained, quote, We discovered that the train had been properly made up in Oakland, California, and properly delivered to St. Louis. But in the St. Louis yards, a thoughtless switchman had moved a piece of steel just three inches. That piece of steel was a switch point, and the car that should have been in Newark, New Jersey, was in New Orleans, Louisiana, 1,300 miles away. This week, we take a look at switch points that made a significant and painful difference in the lives of David and Solomon, and, by application, can be powerful for us to notice and avoid ourselves. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey there, welcome back this week. We are back. I guess I should say I am back. <laughs> um, Zach did a solo episode last week, um, but I am here to study along with you today, Zach. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Um, this week's study is 2 Samuel 5 through 7, 11 through 12, and then we go into 1 Kings and study chapters 3, 8, and 11. So Come Follow Me has us focusing in on a few specific chapters, obviously because the Old Testament is just huge to fit a study into one year. But um, so we have lots to lots to talk about today and some interesting stories to follow that as well. Well, kind of depressing ones, right? Because this is, um, in fact, I, I, one of the chapters that wasn't included, but that I, I think is absolutely crucial to read in order to understand the purpose of these books, is Second Chap, uh, Second Samuel chapter one. This is right after Saul dies, and I love David's reverence of the former king. Uh, it's important to understand, I think, because David didn't ascend to the throne out of rivalry or competition. He's not a competing king who overthrew the other king. He's he was anointed by God, but even with that, he he was loyal and and helpful to Saul until Saul turned against him. And then, even after Saul's death, there's a loyalty and a love and a reverence there. Um, and so, in Second Samuel chapter one, David has kind of this this psalm of sorrow for the fallen king. And in that, he says the same thing three times. This is verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? And then in verse 25, how are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? And then in verse 27, how are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Now, that's an ironic inclusion because the book of 2 Samuel is also the fall of David. And so what we wanted to look at in this episode, we have these stories of incredible ascension. You know, Saul becomes the first king over a united Israel, and then David becomes the Lord's anointed king over Israel and then Solomon after him will become king over Israel. And, and these all three of these kings were great in their own right. And yet all three of them uh, fall uh, from their anointed place and their chosen place and their righteousness. 
And that's a deliberate choice by the narrators of these books. And we're not sure exactly who the narrators are. Some think that that Jeremiah might have been the narrator uh, or the writer, at least of the, the first and second kings. Um, but whoever it was, it was someone that was trying to show how Israel got into its state of kind of perpetual bondage to foreign powers, how they lost their their autonomy and their freedom, um, how Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple destroyed, how all of that happened. And so they're looking back at their own history and identifying places where they had these great leaders of promise who fell. And it's kind of disappointing because we were talking about this earlier. You want to look at and Without reading all of the chapters, you sometimes are tempted to look at these people in the Old Testament and think, oh man, these are incredible heroes. You know, David is a hero. But the intent of the author isn't to show these heroic stories. It's to show how the mighty have fallen. And that's why we thought it would be interesting to kind of study that process of how they came to be where they are. How did these great men who had this potential and had the opportunity and even had the resources to do something really great, um, make, I guess, ultimately make the mistakes that they did or how did they come to it? And, you know, we have the way, the way Zach keeps referring to this is kind of the anatomy of a mistake or the anatomy of sin. And we, one of our favorite books that we read, I don't even know how we got a hold of it, but it's called the anatomy of peace. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that. Um, is that where you got the name? I don't know, but I I just like how I like how detailed the story is yeah. in, de- in in focusing on the specific steps that took place uh, in order for these individuals to fall. Well, I was just thinking that that book it's a whole book detailing how to find more peaceful um, relationships, peaceful peacefulness in your heart, yeah. um, and basically just more peace in your life. And I think that maybe in this opposite direction, I just couldn't help but think of it in this way is like the anatomy. There's the same process when we make mistakes or when there are sins is that there's steps to it. And mm-hmm. it's usually this buildup and you get to see that in these stories. And so that's why I think that this is a great story for us to read, even though it's a bummer, but yeah. it's another hard story to read. <laughs> it's a warning. It's a prescription against falling ourselves. We are likewise mighty ones, children of heavenly parents and, and inheritors of divine thrones. Um, and yet we likewise uh, can fall prey to sin and temptation and mistake. And and so I think the, the purpose of these stories, at least by the intended authors is that we read ourselves into the stories and see I am a I am a mighty one and if these great kings can fall then I can learn from their mistakes so that I can avoid them so now before we dive in I think it's important to point out uh, the goal of course of every episode we have is to help you with your individual study and so one frame uh, that I think is really healthy to use when looking at this story is kind of a um, is it I perspective. Uh, There's this moment in the story of David when after David has uh, committed his his sin, which we'll get to in a bit, the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him a parable of somebody else committing a sin. And David gets really upset and frustrated. And who is this person? He deserves to be punished. And Nathan points at David and says, thou art the man. And it's this moment where David realizes his own guilt, but also realizes his guilt has been found out by the prophet. 
And I think uh, stories like this can be really painful, but there's also a chance for us to look inward and say, is there a part of this that's in me? Or if we're looking at the anatomy of a fall, um, is there somewhere along the line, is there a switch point that maybe I've taken or a, a particular mistake that I've made that I can correct now so that it doesn't go as far as it did with David and Solomon? And I like to think of these stories as a way of helping us to kind of uncover the shame or the guilt or any thoughts that we have that um, maybe compound the feelings that we have when we do something wrong. I've, I've loved that aspect of especially these stories because these are men that are very public, they're very official, they're very famous in their day. And here they are making mistakes. And I think it's good for us to remember. And I had that feeling as I was reading that maybe that's even the reason that we have these stories included. It's that unveiling of the truth of the human nature Mm -hmm. is that we're all susceptible to um, mistakes. We're all susceptible to sin. We're all just humans trying to do the best we can. And so I think it's also important for us to kind of realize that. And I think that can help us remove the layers of the guilt and shame that come along with um, any mistake that we make. Mm -hmm. If that for me is um, a takeaway, I think that we can all have, I think it's worth your study. And maybe that's why we have so many, sorry, but crazy stories from the Bible is just for, to help us remember that. Well, I think it's, that's a great point because I'm thinking of the Savior's lineage. I mean, David, this is the line of kings and uh, the Messiah is the son of David. Jesus uh, claims that title. And if you look at his genealogy, it is filled with stories just like David's of uh, either outsiders um, who become or convert to Israel like Ruth or someone who's anointed in Israel who falls like David. And that's the lineage the Savior comes from. That's the one that he owns. It's almost as if the Savior is saying, I come from a line of people who made mistakes because I am here to help people who make mistakes, which is everybody. And so it's a beautiful perspective to just realize the, the humanity in the story. Yeah. And if nothing more, the Bible is teaching us this year. That's it. Teaching us exactly that this year. Well, the first fall to look at actually isn't David or Solomon. I think it's a... it's. Uh, the story of Uzzah in Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter six, and it's a small one, one that you could probably skip over. But I think there's a, a bit of anatomy here that, for me, is really important. So, if you read the story, it sounds kind of crazy and harsh. They're moving the Ark of the Covenant. David's become king. They're moving it from where Saul had it to now the city of David. And as they're transporting it, the Ark is on this cart and it wobbles a bit. And Uzzah stretches forth his hand to stop the ark from falling and then is struck dead because he is not permitted to touch the ark. It's a very strict commandment. No one but the authorized are allowed to touch or carry the ark. And if you read it at first glance, you think this sounds like a really harsh story, uh, which a lot of these stories sound really harsh. But there's a little bit of anatomy here that I think is important. And I didn't notice it until this read through. At the very beginning of the chapter, it says in chapter 6, verse 3 in 2 Samuel, that they set the ark of God upon a new cart. And if you look back at the instructions given for transporting the ark in Exodus, the Lord is very specific how the ark is to be transported. There's rings on the side of the, the casket, 
and they're supposed to put poles through the rings and then hold the ends of the poles and transport the ark. They're supposed to carry it by hand. By putting it in an ark, whatever the reasons may be, maybe it's convenience or ease or speed or whatever, they are deliberately disobeying a commandment from God. Now, it seems like a really small commandment, but then you see the consequences that come. And so in this one fall, um, the anatomy of the mistake that I see, at least one bit of it, is we have to be obedient to the small things. Um, now, of course, none of us are perfect at this, but I, I know I am guilty sometimes of looking at small-ish, quote-unquote, commandments and thinking that they're just that, small and inconsequential, when in reality, a lot of them are connected to larger consequences or larger purposes. Um, and if nothing else, they help us be willing to prove our loyalty to God and what he's commanded us. So even though that's not David or Solomon, I think that's a good basis and a good place to start because both David and Solomon are disobedient to seemingly small commandments. And that is kind of the first switch point for each of them. But there's always that progression too, like you mentioned with the way that this story unfolds, that he had kind of maybe had the warning signs ahead of time. Um, I think I can get a little uncomfortable with these kind of things because I don't want us to get confused with um, what it means to obey a small-ish commandment versus what it means to keep up with whatever the cultural standards mm -hmm. are put upon us. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important for us to think of these things as the small things that God sees that are important for us and what we need to be following and not what get, because I start to feel frantic when I think of the small commandments that I'm supposed to be doing. Like, oh no, I know I'm not doing that perfect or I'm not doing that perfect. And when I really look at that, when I get frantic or nervous about things I might not be doing or things I'm not doing correctly, like those things mm -hmm. might fall under is usually when I'm maybe comparing myself to other people or what other people's expectations are instead of um, the way that I think God wants me to be yeah. living. That's a great, that's a great point. I think it maybe then highlights just what this small commandment was that was so seriously consequential for Uzzah. It's a commandment about how to treat sacred things. It's not just any small commandment. It's how they're treating the, the, the literal symbol of God in their midst. And if I'm thinking of the small commandments that are important for us, I think there's also small commandments in how we treat sacred things. Um, our, our personal scripture study and prayer, um, our, our observance in the temple, our worship services, there are some small commandments there that can be really easy, I think, to become complacent in that are important. And so I, I like that because it's not every small thing that matters, but there are some small things that really do matter. And in fact, I think looking at the next two stories of David and Solomon, both of them start with a seemingly small thing. So to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, there's two things I noticed at the beginning of this story before we ever get David and Bathsheba. And then of course, David, uh, orchestrating the, the murder of Uriah. Two small things that set this whole thing up that you might be tempted to, to just skip over. The first is right in verse one. The narrator wants you to notice this because he deliberately calls it out. It came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David 
tarried still at Jerusalem. In other words, David is supposed to be on the field with his soldiers. That's where he has been in every chapter preceding this. He is the kind of king that leads among and with his people. That's the kind of king Israel is supposed to have by divine decree. And here now we have David, whether out of ego or pride or comfortability, has now separated himself from his people. He's now different than them. And you see this starkly contrasted because when Uriah comes back, when he calls Uriah back and he tries to get Uriah to go and relax from the war and go be with Bathsheba and spend time at home, Uriah, in contrast to David, refuses because his soldiers are still on the field. The army is on the field and that's where I should be. And David is not where he should be. Don't you think this is exactly also another example of what we just talked about, of those small things of he kind of just wasn't being a good leader. He wasn't taking those basic principles of what he knew he should be doing. I think that's a good example of, of what we just talked about with those small commandments to keep. Well, and you think, you know, last episode, we talked about David as a symbol for Christ and uh, in the preceding chapters, he is. Remember, this is David that goes into the trench with his people. He fights for his people. He's with his people. He's a shepherd. He esteems himself as part of his people. And now we have the first indication that David has separated himself from the people that he's supposed to love and serve. And because of that really small thing, it sets him up, that switch point sets him up uh, to go down a path that's really destructive for him. And that contrast with Uriah is really kind of heart-wrenching, actually. The second small thing I noticed here uh, is in verse 3, David goes up on the roof, which there are some commentators that say people bathe on their roof all the time in ancient Near Eastern cultures. It's not something that's, that's uncommon. And so the only reason David would have for staying home from battle and going up on his roof in the evening is to see your uh, see Bathsheba bathing. Whether that's true or not, he goes up on the roof and he sees her. And then here's the small thing that he does. David sent and inquired after the woman. Um, that word inquired shows up repeatedly throughout David's story. And it's always positive because it's always David inquiring of the Lord. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2 and verse 4, David inquires of the Lord when he's in battle situations. He does it in 30, verse 8. And in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 and 5, verse 19 and 5, verse 23. In all of those places, David inquires of the Lord. And here, David uses that same act, but now he's not inquiring of the Lord. He's inquiring after a temptation. And that's another small thing that then sets him up for destruction. And so there's practical things in there, but I think one is to make sure that we are where we're supposed to be and that we remember our humility. And then the other, that uh, our focus, our attention is on the things that it should be on and not on things that can distract us or pull us away. That's really good. I feel like we need to like have a map of the the anatomy of what how this works together. I'm I'm starting to sketch it out already. Like I've done okay. in previous years with, with <laughs> students, I've done like stair steps. Like let's mark each step down oh, that that's David good. takes. I like that. Maybe that's something that you can do in your study, or maybe that's something I'll do this week actually, because I'm already kind of mapping it out in my head. <laughs> well, it's important, I think, because then you notice it's not just that David went from being great to murdering Uriah. It happened over the course of probably days and weeks and months. This is a, it's a progression, as you said earlier. It's, it's something that's built consciously. And at any point along the way, David could have stopped, right? Even if he stays home from battle, 
he could have had a moment of repentance there and said, wait a minute, I shouldn't be here. I should be out with my men. There's this line um, when Uriah is sent to the front part of the battle. This is verse 20, or verse 16. Uh, Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah into a place where he knew that valiant men were. That's where David should have been. And so there could have been a moment where he repented and said, hold on, I am supposed to be out with my men. I'm going to go. And that small mistake then dies as a small mistake, but because he continues in it. And similarly, he inquires after Bathsheba and she comes to his house or he finds out about her and he goes, wait a minute, I should not be doing this. You know, even when she comes, even even after the moment when he lies lies with her, he could have then turned, repented, confessed to Uriah. There's, there's prescriptions in the law of Moses for becoming clean of things like that. There's a repentance process he could have gone through. But it's the persistence and the cover-up that caused him such such pain. That's what I was going to say. It's that um, cover-up that we have all been through. Like even if it was when you were a five-year-old and you said a lie and then you have to do the retracing of steps of, well, if this happened, if this happened, it's something that we talk to with our kids all the time. Is like, it's one thing to just, it never feels good to have to cover up a mm-hmm. lie. And you can see that progression that um, David goes through as he's trying to say, oh shoot, this didn't work. This didn't work. Now I have to try and cover it up. And then it really does become something, something that's very hurtful in this case, but that always just doesn't feel good when you're in that situation and you tell that little white lie that isn't a big deal. And then it turns into a much bigger deal as you try and cover it up. Which then brings us to Solomon. So, uh, Solomon, of course, we know and love the story of Solomon having to use his wisdom between the two mothers that claim the child is theirs. And he says, well, let's just cut the child in half. And the mother then that the true mother is the only one that doesn't want the child to be slain. Um, I love that when Solomon is approached by the Lord, visited by the Lord, and the Lord asks him, ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you, that Solomon asks for a um, an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. And the Lord gives him that heart plus gives him everything he didn't ask for, which is riches and success and wealth. Um, I I was I got sidetracked a bit this week and was trying to look up the net worth of Solomon, which is tricky because we're dealing with ancient measurements and gold. And um, But in, in chapter 10, verse 14, it gives a brief little measure he gets 603 score and six talents of gold per year. So 666 talents, a talent of gold is about 75 pounds of gold, um, which if you do the math and account for inflation and all of that, that's about a billion dollars a year that Solomon gets as, as liquid income, let alone all of the things that he owns. And that's just in gold. Um, in fact, he... he uh, <laughs> A little bit later on in that chapter, it says that uh, none of the vessels in his house were made of silver because silver was accounted for nothing in the days of Solomon. It's, he's so wealthy that even silver is, 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 means nothing to him. One of the things I was reading this week had uh, estimated Solomon's net worth to be about $2 trillion dollars. That's one of those, you always get bothered when I try and like, that's, if I had that, that's like this many more times as much money as I have or as we make in a day or you keep doing the surprise <laughs> face. I just thought, wait, were you the person that wrote that article? This sounds like something you <laughs> you would go through and figure out. Or this is something our kids would. I'm sure you guys are have children like we do that, um, hey, Google, who has the most money in the whole world? Hey, Google, 
how much money is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know. Who, now we know. Yeah. So obviously Solomon uh, reaches heights of grandeur and success that even surpass David. He builds the temple. David asks to build the temple and isn't allowed. Solomon does build this incredible temple. And then we get to chapter 11 and we begin the fall of Solomon. However, I noticed an earlier switch point with a smaller thing that set Saul on this course. This is back in chapter 3, verse 1. It says that Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of the building of his own house, the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem right about. The word affinity that's translated in the King James as, as affinity, the Hebrew word actually means a marriage allegiance. He marries a princess of Egypt to uh, make an alliance with Egypt. Um, and one of the more well-known scriptures back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is the one that commands Israel not to make marriage with, um, with foreigners uh, because those foreign relationships and those foreign allies for a young and fragile people will lead them astray. And so here Solomon does this in chapter 3, and then we get to chapter 11, and it names his, or it lists, it doesn't list his, it numbers his, whatever, 700 wives and 300 concubines, and, and it says they turned away Solomon's heart from following the Lord. He builds altars and uh, groves for these foreign gods that, if you look into the history of what these Canaanites worshipped, how they worshipped, it's grotesque, it's horribly immoral. And Solomon supports that with his money. And uh, so when he was asking about the, you know, to have the honest heart, that was, he was trying in the beginning. He was trying in the beginning. And then, like David, gave into these small. It's a lot to keep track of all those wives and concubines, too. (laughs) Well, I think it's it's just another warning story. And for this one, I think um, Solomon was willing to sacrifice his standards for success. that marriage with an Egyptian princess is, in the worldly sense, a very wise, politically wise move. But it is not a religiously or spiritually wise move for Solomon because, as we see, it does do exactly what the Lord said it would do. It leads him astray. Had Solomon not chosen that, had he chosen his standards over that sacrifice, he may not have been as wealthy. He may not have been as successful. His kingdom may not have been as has been had been as large or as expansive, but he would have retained his honor, his integrity, his relationship with God and his standing in the kingdom of God. And I think we're faced with decisions like that all the time where we have to decide, am I going to sacrifice my standards for success, which the world will reward us for, or do we hold to our standards, even though that means we will not be as successful as we could be? The more that we study this and talk about this, I just realize just how really applicable this is for all of us in just in everything we do, really. I think these are all things that we can all relate to. Well, I mean, this would be a, a great question to ask, you know, ask ourselves, okay, what are the lengths to which I'm willing to go to be successful? Am I willing to sacrifice, you know, my, I don't know, my morning scripture study if I give up my morning scripture study or I don't spend as much time prayer or I give up sacrament services or Sunday worship or family time. That's a big one, I think, in the world today where people are willing to give up their family time to become more successful. And yeah, it does mean you make more money or or have more 
stuff, but what's the sacrifice and is it worth it religiously and spiritually? Mm-hmm. And again, that idea I feel of the priorities that we set, making sure that we um, are in congruence with what God is wanting us to do. I think it's interesting because in these examples that we've read, it's often the Lord is stating exactly what they should be doing and then they contradict that. And I think that's so for us. Each of us will have different priorities and um, different things that we're called to do that God is wanting us to do. But I think ultimately it's remembering to keep him in the mix as we figure out um, who he wants us to become and what where he wants our focus to be. There's a message that the Lord gives to all three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, repeatedly. Uh, this is one example, 1138. It shall be, if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and wilt walk in my ways, and do that which is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, that I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, and will give Israel unto thee. I think there's a great pattern for either recovery from a mistake or avoidance of a mistake in the first place. And that is hearkening, so listening to the commandments, walking in the ways that God gives us, doing what is right and keeping the statutes uh, that the Lord gives us. That's not just reiteration. I think those are different actions that we can consider. Um, And if we do that, then the Lord promises us to be with us, to build us a sure house, and to give Israel unto us. Thank you so much for studying with us this week. Hopefully this begins a wonderful study for you, and we'll see you next episode.